We're reading from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went and they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Luke 17, let me open us up in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, your triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Lord. Let us not forget that the triumph was without pain, without suffering, that all along the plan to redeem us from our sins and atone us from our sins was the way of the cross. And even though you're victorious now, God, that there was a lot of pain and suffering involved. So we pray, Lord, that as we open up the scripture this morning, that your spirit would speak to us, that it would touch us, that we would be able to see who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in doing a quick read of this section of text, one would think that the passage is about gratitude and that it's about thankfulness, but I actually think it's a lot deeper than that. And the reason why I believe that is because in our study of the Gospel of Luke for the past year and a half, it seems out of character given the context of what Luke has written us before and after this section of Scripture. See, the Bible was inspired by God, and Luke was used by God to pen this biography of Jesus. What was Luke getting across in writing this story, in writing this biography? What what, what was Luke all about? These these are the types of questions for us to think about. Now, before we we jump into our text this morning, let's take a look back to Luke chapter 1 to get an idea of what Luke is trying to get across to us by writing this gospel. Start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, if you go back to our studies way back in Luke chapter 1, you would have heard that Luke was a physician, that Luke was a doctor. So we know that he was bright and that he had the mind of a scientist. And we witness from his writings how detailed he is in recording his gospel account, and it's no different from our text this morning. The details that Luke included in his stories are relevant, and many stories he recorded for us are are not a compilation of, of stories that are just kind of scattered, and he's just kind of fitting in together. They fit as one. They fit together as a unit. And so he recorded this for us in verse 11, this detail. Now, listen up to this. 
On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, as I mentioned earlier today, today is Palm Sunday. And it's fitting that we're looking at this passage today, which starts with, on the way to Jerusalem. Because Palm Sunday is about Jesus' triumphant entry, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we'll get to when we get to Luke chapter 19, sometime in 2020. And so Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week. And so we're not going to have a typical Palm Sunday message today, but we're going to talk about being on the way to Jerusalem, which the Holy Week concludes with next Sunday, Easter. Okay? So it is the week before Christ Jesus' death and His resurrection. So when Jesus entered into Jerusalem in chapter 19, the crowds greeted Him and they covered His paths with cloaks on the road. You know, they were taking Him off and they were put Him on. And Matthew 21 uh, records for us that His path was covered with branches from trees. And these branches are most likely palm branches. Therefore, Palm Sunday. And so it was this time of celebration of the people. But what they didn't realize was that it was Jesus' journey to die on the cross. And here they're thinking, oh yes, Rome is going to be overthrown and, and things are going to be coming out right and every, everything is going to be coming out right. And, and yet He is marching to His death. So it is fitting this Palm Sunday to look at Luke chapter 17, verse 11, as Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. It's significant for Luke to record this because this is why Jesus came to earth. This is why. He came to die. That's why He came. And Jerusalem is where He was going to redeem us from our sins, which we're all guilty of. So He is on the way to this place. And so some of you may be thinking, like, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm going to get my way into heaven. Have you ever lied? Ever? Come on, be honest. And if you say you haven't, you're lying. <laughs> have you ever stolen? You know, have you ever stolen something? You know, be honest. Taxes are due in a couple weeks. Maybe you haven't cheated on your taxes or stolen from your taxes. But what about from your employer? Have you taken a 15-minute break that was actually 16? Or an hour lunch that was actually an hour and 10 minutes? Have you stealing from your employer? Right? So, um, have you ever uh, not worked for the money that you're paid for? Right? You're just kind of like looking at the internet, shopping on eBay, looking on Craigslist, doing that sort of stuff. I see the smiles there. You're lying. You're a cheater. You liar, cheater, <laughs> thief. So, you ever cheat on a test in school? Right? Or, or homework, or papers, or projects. Hey, you're a thief. You're a liar. That's what you are. You're guilty. And you know what? That's only two commandments. We even haven't done all ten. I could have even just done one, and you would have been guilty on it. The lying one. So you and I are guilty of sin. There's no way of getting around. And the only way to atone, to compensate for that sin, before a holy God, is death. Death. The wages of sin is death, as Paul records for us. That's why there were these sin offerings of blood in the Old Testament. Animals were sacrificed because death is the consequence of sin. Jesus paid that for us once and for all 2,000 years ago. And if you don't accept Jesus' sacrifice for your sins, you will be guilty of your sins before God. 
Accept Jesus by faith that He has taken your sins and you will be given a free gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is a significant issue with people who don't believe Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. You go back to Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Soon afterward, He went to a town called Nain, and His disciples and a great crowd went with Him. As He drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of His mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then He came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and He said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And this was the reaction in verse 16 that I want to point out and highlight. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. See, there are people who are willing to recognize that Jesus was a great prophet. But that's it. And from what we've studied and researched and discussed, you know, we can conclude that Jesus was more than a great prophet. But there are others who are doing this, but they can't come to the point to say that Jesus is also Messiah and He's Savior and He is King. And I'm not coming down on those of you who are kind of still in this spiritual quest to find out who Jesus is. That's just part of your journey. That if you've recognized that He is prophet and you're just kind of continuing on, great. Just don't take your lifetime to figure that out. But it's great that you're you're, you're digging and you're trying to figure this out. But then what happens in verse 17? And this report about Him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Then the disciples of John reported all these things in Him, and John, calling two of His disciples to Him, sent to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, asking this question. This is the guy who said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is this guy who was prophesied about to be the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. He's the one who asked, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, why would John ask this? Well, John thought that judgment was coming with Jesus. That that Palm Sunday, that that wasn't supposed to be on the, on, on a little donkey and going, he thought that Jesus was coming with a white stallion as a conqueror with a big old sword and coming through. And so that judgment was right around the corner. But rather than judgment, what was happening with Jesus? He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. So so he wants to understand what's going on. And and he wants to ask Jesus, What up, cuz? What up? Right? So that's essentially John's question. You you didn't know he was a thug like that, though, did you? What up, cuz? He was like that. So that's what was happening in Luke chapter 7, verse 20. Let's carry on in verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In other words, what up, cuz? And so in in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. 
And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus was saying, Chill out, cuz. Chill out. Everything is going as planned. Everything is going as planned. And Luke recorded for us that everything was going as planned. You look at Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of the old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And where was Jesus to suffer and be rejected and to be killed and to be raised? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. See, this is the unfolding drama of redemption. Scroggy wrote a great book about that. It's about this thick. It'll take you about a year to read. Pick it up. It's awesome. And Luke recorded for us how things were going to develop and Jerusalem was the setting for this drama of redemption to unfold. His mission was going to be accomplished in Jerusalem. And so you see the importance of Palm Sunday. Now head over to verse 51 of Luke chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so he laid out this plan, and Luke is recording this whole plan throughout the Gospel of Luke, and he lays out this plan in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unscrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So since that day where Jesus self-proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, he said in Luke chapter 5, verses 31-32, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Why do you think Jesus went into those three stories of being lost in chapter 15 that we studied about a month ago? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. See, Jesus is all about seeking and saving the lost. Those who are lost. And for those who are lost, this is just great news. But for those of us who may think that we have been found, or that we know better, we don't need to be found. Or maybe we're just being outwardly religious. You know what? We might be in store for a rude awakening come Judgment Day. Why are the religious folks, the ones who claim to know God and claim to be righteous, Jesus' strongest opposition? 
Because Jesus called them out on their hypocrisy and they didn't like that. They didn't feel at home with Jesus as their God. Why were the broken and the poor and the lame, the outcasts, the sinners, the ones to worship Jesus? They found themselves in heaven. That was home to them, to be with Jesus. That was home. To have a God like Jesus is right where they'd want to be. That was home to them. Now if you're a visitor here, please don't for a moment think that we have our stuff together. We don't. I I can tell you that. In fact, if you don't have your stuff together, you're going to fit in really well here. You're going to fit in really well. And if you've been here for any significant amount of time, you understand that there's no way for us to earn our way into heaven. That we believe in effort, but we don't earn our way into heaven. And the only way to enter into heaven is on our knees. It's in humility. It's not with your head up and your chest puffed up high and saying, like, you've got to have a lot of self-confidence. And you march in there and go in there. Prideful people like that tend not to be attracted to Jesus. They tend not to be. All you have to do is look at the scribes and the Pharisees who were extremely religious, and did they enter? And if you don't know that you are lost, you don't know that you need to be found. Right? You, you don't know that someone is seeking you. Someone is wanting to save you. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And this is consistent with Jesus' focus on Jerusalem as Luke recorded for us in verse 11 of Luke chapter 17 of our text today. That Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem and he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now Luke, being the detailed writer that he is, wrote in verse 12, and as he entered the village, which just kind of gives you the sense that Luke is very detail-oriented and also that this lends some credibility to the gospel because back then lepers were not allowed inside the village. So Luke recorded for us that Jesus was entering the village, and so they're on the outside. They're not on the inside. He's entering the village, and he was met by these ten lepers. Lepers were outcasts, and they weren't allowed in with the general populace because their disease was contagious. They were pronounced by the priest to be contagious and therefore cast out. It's all in Luke chapter 13 and 14. And so they had to stay a good distance away from the village as Luke recorded for us in verse 12. And so you'd find them kind of like on the outskirts of town, but you would never find them inside. In fact, a leper would have to shout out, unclean, unclean, to let others know. It's in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45. And they would have to shout this and say, unclean. They had to wear clothes that were kind of torn and ripped and they had to kind of identify themselves as lepers so that people would would have this distance away from them and so that they can hear them from earshot and know like oh that's a leper i need to walk a different way i need to go a different way and so here they are they are an earshot from jesus and they're shouting to jesus master have mercy on us they're lifting up their voice they're pleading for mercy how long has it been since they've been with their loved ones How long has it been? Because once they're diagnosed, you have to go into isolation for seven days and the priest checks you again and it's another seven days and if you are, then you're an outcast. So at least 14 days that they've been in isolation, 
And so here they are. They've been away from their loved ones. How long has it been since they felt a touch from another human being? Because in some places, the rabbis wouldn't even allow them to wash their own face. So when was the last kind of contact from someone? Shaking a hand, a hug, or whatever. And so the physical torment probably wasn't as tormenting as the emotional and the psychological torment that they had to endure. Isolation, ostracism, no contact. To be completely exiled from your loved ones, your children, your spouse, your parents, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, everyone around your friends, you are complete isolation. And you can watch them from a distance continue on with their lives, but you have no part in that. Isn't that hell? Isn't that what the rich man experienced with Lazarus? You know that great chasm? So great, there's no movement back and forth. That's a living hell. And so how did these lepers even know to ask Jesus to have mercy on them? Obviously, the word of Jesus got out. They got the word that, you know, he's a compassionate guy. He's an awesome guy. He, he performs miracles. He does these incredible things. You know, we, we got to do this. If we have any chance to see our families again, if we have any chance to be with our loved ones again, we, we got to do this. So the ten of them must have been just so excited to hear that Jesus was going to be coming to town. And the hope that they must have felt that hope. And so when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, this story has always touched me at this verse. This verse to me is kind of what touches my heart. Because in verse 13, they lifted up their voice to Jesus, right? So imagine this. In order to lift your voice for someone to hear you, you have to be quite a distance away. You don't shout when they're right in front of you unless you're my children. But otherwise, you're far away, and, and that's, because, that's why you shout. You want to get someone's attention who's far away. They're, they're far away. But look at verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them. Did you catch that? I imagine that these ten guys were at a really good distance because... They're showing Jesus respect as a rabbi. They're showing Jesus respect because they don't want to defile him or make him unclean. So they are a good distance away and they are shouting, Jesus, have mercy on us. And I imagine Jesus hearing this and, and he was like, I'm going to make my way over there. And so he's making his way towards those voices because you read here, he said, he didn't shout back. Jesus, have mercy on us. He was like, all right, I will. I Okay. He said to them, he said to them, he didn't lift up his voice and Jesus saw them. So I imagine these guys just kind of like being not even in eyesight. They're just kind of shouting, Jesus have mercy on us, you know. And Jesus is like, all right, where are these guys? I'll peek around, oh, there you are, I see you. Jesus saw them. And I imagine Jesus getting up closer to them than anyone has in a while. And this is something really awesome about Jesus. He comes to us. He sees us. He has compassion on us. He speaks to us. He doesn't shout. He said to them. He gets close enough so you guys can talk. Now let's look at what happens when you are seen by Jesus. 
Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew chapter 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Luke chapter 7, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. That's that widow who lost her son. Jesus speaking of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Luke chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus speaking of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You get an idea of what this is? To see is more than to physically see. It's more than that. It is to spiritually perceive. It is to have spiritual perception. If we are to have compassion for injustice, we have to see with the heart like Jesus. We have to perceive as Jesus perceives. And if we don't see With a heart like Jesus, if we don't have the perception that Jesus has, we'll be able to walk by the harassed, the helpless, the sick, the the, the faint of heart, the beaten, the hungry, the rebellious, and we won't feel nothing or anything. I don't know what the grammar is. Nothing. You won't feel nothing which is worse than the opposite, which is coldness. Right? Right? If you feel cold towards some things, like, oh, oh, and they repulse you, at least you know you have feelings. At least you know. But to feel nothing? You're in an extremely dangerous place. To feel nothing. That's bad news. You better check that out. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, Jesus saw them as people. He had perception into their souls, into their spirits, into their hearts, their minds, and how they were harassed, and how they were helpless, and sick, and faint of heart, and beaten, and hungry. He saw that. He perceived that. But he saw that from getting closer. He got closer, close enough to say to them. Not shout, but to say. And you won't be able to see and perceive people as people and feel compassion for them without getting close to them. Can't do it. You have to get close. You have to build that compassion by by getting close enough to talk to people and to to hear their stories. Verse 14 again. When he saw them, he, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. Now why did Jesus tell them to go show themselves to the priests? Because Jesus did not come to abolish the law, Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he wants them to carry out Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. This is where all this stuff is found. And so we don't have time to go over all of that this morning, but there is your reference, which I recommend that you take a look at to always check out what I'm quoting and teaching in the Bible, and not just accept what I say without checking the Word of God. Please check me. And so it was the priest's job to issue this clean bill of health to show that someone was no longer leprous. You come to me, we'll check you out. Mm, All right, 
there you are. We'll go through the process of getting you unclean. Then you are allowed to go back to your families. Then you're allowed to go back to your loved ones. So this process was so that the priest could broker someone back into their community and be reunited with their loved ones, with their families. And so you notice how Jesus worked here. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. See, Jesus cares so much that you are back in community. That you're back with your love. That you feel that love. That you can extend that love. That you can share what Jesus has done for you with your loved ones. Don't keep it to yourself. And as they went, they were cleansed. Did you catch that? And as they went, they were cleansed. See, there was an element of faith on their part. Jesus didn't say, you're healed. Go show yourself to the priest. He told them to go show themselves to the priest, and as they went, they were cleansed. See, their cleansing happened simultaneously with their act of faith. Jesus was instructing them to have faith. Now, right before this story, Jesus told his disciples to have the right type of faith, right? The, the size of the grain of a mustard seed, and they'll be able to do some miraculous things. And he used this picture of uprooting a mulberry tree, which had this extensive root system, and dumping it into the sea. And so here Jesus had faith himself. He's modeling this faith for his disciples. And through these ten lepers, he's teaching us about faith, of empowering them with that type of faith to get healed, to receive a miracle, to receive that mulberry tree throwing into the ocean. And one that is just miraculous, This is a miraculous thing. And this is similar to what happened to Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Back in 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman was a leper. And so they went to war. He got the servant girl, this little girl, and he was, the little girl was serving with the wife. And so Naaman had leprosy, and and the the little girl started sharing uh, about this prophet. You know, there's this prophet in Samaria. His name is Elisha, and he'll be able to cure you. And so he ends up in front of Elisha's house. And what does Elisha tell him to do? 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 10. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. See, Elisha didn't say, oh, you're here. You're healed. I'll heal you. See, there was this act of faith to be acted upon to receive the healing. And then Naaman gets all mad and tells his servants, calm him down. And they remind him that, you know, this is the great prophet Elisha. And he said, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. So just do it. I'm I'm, I'm a king. Just do it. Do the act of faith. And then what happened? Man, that guy came out like a baby's butt. He was like, it's smooth, right? Just forget proactive, you know? And so it was for the ten lepers. There was an act of faith that Jesus required of them in order to be cleansed. And as they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Now, at least one of them, we don't know about all of them, but at least one of them had a double whammy on them. Right? One of them was not only leprous, but he was also a Samaritan. See, this was a race looked down upon by the Jews. So not only was he an outcast because of his disease, but also because of his race. 
Some of those other ones could have been Samaritan. We were not told. Most likely they were also Jewish. And so there's probably a mix. We're just not told. But I wonder if the Jewish lepers uh, felt they had this leg up on the Samaritan thinking, you know what, Jesus is coming by. And if Jesus heals any of us, it's going to be us. And so the Samaritan was this outcast of outcasts. Now, how many of us feel like we're entitled like that? Well, we go to church. We're Christians. My my family's been Christians for a long time. Uh, My dad's a pastor and all this stuff, and we feel entitled. If Jesus is going to save anybody, it's going to be me. No, that's not right. So here, the Samaritan was probably this outcast among outcasts, maybe. Because on the other hand, we see here that they were together. And they're pleading for the same mercy. It's the same cause. So, so maybe the issue of race was no big deal because their disease was actually the bigger deal. And isn't this true? Because, you know, in times of war, race doesn't matter, does it? The next guy next to you, if he can fire a gun, hey, you're my best friend. You are my best friend. I don't care what race. You are colorblind at that time. Your life depends on it, Right? Race becomes irrelevant when your life is on the line. You're not going to turn down an organ from a donor of a race you despise if the organ will save your life. Right? You're not going to turn it down. Samaritan, Jew, it just doesn't matter anymore because our life as lepers, we are separated by our loved ones. There's no interactions with anyone else who isn't a leper, and so you're looked at and you're talked about in disrespectful ways. Some people are throwing rocks at you to make sure you move further away, calling you names and doing all this stuff. It's interesting how the more serious issues of life are that they unite people, and the things that once divided people from one another are so small that they don't matter anymore. And the church is the last place for there to be race issues because our cause for the kingdom is so much greater. We're to be united under the serious issue of where people will live their everlasting life. It is a life and death issue. If race is an important issue for you, you don't have the kingdom in mind. You don't know that you're in a battle. You don't know that the brother next to you is fighting the same war. You're lost. You don't know that someone is seeking you and is trying to save you. Now back to verses 15 and 16. This is where I think people get the idea that this passage is about thankfulness and gratitude and all that stuff where I just don't think it is. I think this passage is more about perception. Spiritual perception. To see as Jesus sees. To perceive as Jesus perceives. Look at 15 and 16 again. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. All ten of them physically saw that they were being healed as they were going, right? I just imagine it. Dude, dude, whoa, look, look, look at me, look at me. And they're going, ah, right, and they're going. And, and the, so the science behind physical sight to see that they were cleansed, but they're still missing something. You're missing some. This, the Samaritan had spiritual perception. He saw something that the others did not perceive. And you know how that is, don't you? When someone explains something to you, like your professor or your parents or something, and they explain something to you and you finally get it. You, know, you get, 
and you say, I see. You get it. It's not that you physically saw. You perceive something. You receive something. and you, I get it. I see that. And so when the Samaritan saw, he, perceived, he, he then was moved to go back. And while the others were caught up in the excitement of being healed, they were like, ah, I can just imagine them taking their shirt, ah, look at me, look at me. And they're running. And he was like, wait a minute. God is to be praised. He praised God. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet and he gave thanks. Now, I don't think that praise and thanksgiving are all that out of the ordinary when something miraculous happens. I really don't. I think giving praise and giving thanks to God are quite natural, even for people who don't believe in God, because I hear people who don't believe in God always say, Thank God! What? I thought you don't believe in God. Oh, oh, no, I don't. Thank God? You always say thank God whenever something miraculous happens or some result that you didn't expect to happen happens. So praise and giving thanks to God, they're all over the Bible. It's nothing out of the ordinary. You read about shepherds giving praise. Right? When Jesus was a baby, Luke chapter 2, verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they heard and seen as it had been told them. You hear a centurion, a Roman, giving praise. When Jesus was dying on the cross, Luke chapter 23, verse 47, now when the centurion saw that what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Shepherds and centurions do it, so it's not unusual for people to express their praise and thankfulness to God. What I find telling of the Samaritan's praise and thankfulness is not that he just verbalizes his thanks, but how he expressed his thanks. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet. See how humbled he was by the mercy of God? Like the woman who brought that alabaster flask of ointment to the Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 7 who was standing behind Jesus' feet because, you know, they're in a triclinium and they eat like this and they reach over like this. And so the feet are behind. And so she's standing behind there and she's weeping and she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair and she's kissing his feet and anointing them with that ointment. Like the demoniac who was possessed by Multiple demons, legion, right? In Luke chapter 8, who after he was healed, how was he found? Sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. Like Mary of Bethany in Luke chapter 10. While her sister Martha is all anxious and troubled, trying to get stuff ready for lunch and all that kind of stuff. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So you see by the examples of people found at the feet of Jesus, followers who really perceived the mercy of God, they see. They see the grace of God and they are found at Jesus' feet. It's the same thing with this Samaritan. The other guys are gone. They're off streaking and off to see the priests to get clean and to get a clean bill of health to be reunited with their family this guy saw Jesus he didn't see him being simply cleansed he saw Jesus and it moved him to turn back he didn't see the priest as the one who was needed he saw Jesus as the one who was needed He didn't just accept the gift of his healing, that he was getting clean. 
he sought to accept the giver of the gift. How many of us are guilty of running to priests rather than to running to God? Turning back to God. We run to our education, we run to our jobs, we run to relationships, ignoring the fact that God is who gave that to us in the first place. He gave that gift to us. We're so busy opening our gifts that we neglect the giver of those gifts. A lot of people praise and they thank God, but they do so running to the priest and running to their gifts. Thanks, God! You know, and God's way over there. You're the best. You're the best, God. Good job. And thanking God, like, you know, they're like this eight-year-old thanking his grandparents on Christmas Day after opening, like, his 12th gift. Oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, let me just open my next one. Thank you. And they just want to thank so that they can just move on and open up their next gift. How many of us are just kind of going through those motions and praising God and thanking God in this shallow way and we're just like this? Thanks, God. Coming to church every Sunday. Coming to church every Sunday and week after week and you come here to praise God and, and you have a job and you have a family and you're alive and you live in the United States and there's all these reasons to praise and thank God and all of those are legitimate reasons. But when is the last time that you really saw Jesus? Where you spiritually perceived Him to the extent that it moved you to fall at His feet? At his feet is where we truly realize and understand his mercy. See, you don't see that standing up looking Jesus straight in the eye. Right? That doesn't happen. When you truly see your sin, and you truly see your need for a Savior, you'll find yourself fallen at Jesus' feet. When the Samaritan truly saw Jesus, he had to go back. Praise Him. Fall flat on His face at Jesus' feet and give thanks to Jesus. He really knew who Jesus is, not just what He can do. Do we realize who Jesus is? And as Jesus gave them instructions according to the law to go see the priest, this is the only guy who knew which priest was the real one to go to. Jesus priest. Judas priest, but Jesus priest. Jesus told them to go and show themselves to the priest. So, so the so the leopards leopards. Um, that was, that's from my other pastor. He has this heavy Latino accent. So whenever he says leopards, he said leopards. So every time he taught about this stuff, we're like leopards. Anyway, so the lepers who who were Jewish, man, they were booking it to Jerusalem. Right? Man, I gotta get, yeah, I'm first. I'm gonna get there before you. Ah, they're booking it. And the lepers who were from, uh, who were Samaritan, they're booking it to Mount Gerizim. They're, they're booking it. Mount Gerizim is near Nablus, uh, where, where the interns and I are going to go on our mission trip to the Palestinian people, and I'm so excited to go there. You don't even know how I'm excited to go. I'm so excited to go there. And, um, there are only about 750 Samaritans left in the world. And um, we're going to spend time with the Samaritan priest. I'm so excited for this. Anyway, Jerusalem for the Jews, Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans. 
They're booking it because that's where their respective temples would be. And so this one Samaritan leper was probably jazzed like the rest of them. And he's probably heading that way because he had to turn back. And so he's heading to Mount Gerizim. I'm going over there. I'm going to get over there. But then he stops and he recognizes who the true priest is. Wait a minute. I don't need that guy. This guy just healed me. I I need Jesus. Puts on the brakes, turns around, goes back to the true priest. He really needed to go to Jesus. And you know you have really seen Jesus when you have fallen at his feet in worship, praise, and thankfulness. And it's not just a religious act. You know how that is? Sometimes people just kind of go through the motion. They put their hand up or they get down or whatever. And it's just kind of an act. It's not really like, you know, something that's a spiritual perception of their own brokenness in the presence of God. It's not that. It's just kind of an act. And you may want to know God, but you'll never really know him until you perceive who he is and you fall at his feet, acknowledging the mercies that he's bestowed upon you and you are moved to fall at his feet. Verses 17 and 18. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And you know what? The people who fall at Jesus' feet are often those we don't expect will ever do that. We don't expect that. So he's like, a Samaritan? All the guys, I, I kind of picture the disciples and they're walking and they, they're like, this guy's coming back. And they, they turn around like, that, that's not a Jewish guy. It's, it's the Samaritan guy. And they're just like, what? And they must have been just kind of like dumbfounded and, and, and just surprised. The one who came back was a foreigner? See, we, we can't judge books by their cover. You know? You, you never know who you're going to find at Jesus' feet. That prostitute or whoever. The, the one that seems lazy or I don't know, whoever. And, and this was something the Jews were guilty of in their acceptance of foreigners into their temple. Right? The foreigner was not welcome into their temple. Yet it's the foreigner who is the only one to return and give praise to God. Those guys are booking it back to their temple in Jerusalem where this Samaritan would never be allowed into anyway. And he actually goes to the right place. Now have we ever gotten so accustomed to church and our relationship with God that we have forgotten what it's like to give praise to God? Maybe we have to return to church with foreigner status. Because this stuff has just been so familiar to us. And so that we can appreciate God's mercies. You know, coming to church and tithing and worshiping and song and reading your Bible and serving in ministry, those can all be good things. But the ultimate test of our relationship with God, the ultimate test is whether you have seen Him. Have you perceived Him lately? Or is this all kind of like surface stuff? It's not about giving thanks and praise and all that. That's just surface stuff. What will move you spiritually to fall at His feet if you have ever spiritually perceived Him where it has moved you to go to Him praising Him and falling at His feet and giving Him thanks where you are spiritually awakened and born again and transformed by His presence? Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you want to see God, 
You need to pray in faith that he shows himself to you so that you may perceive him, so that you may see him. Pray for your need of mercy as he reveals those things to you. You will find yourself at his feet. And he will say to you, like he said to the Samaritan in verse 19, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Lord, as we cry out to you and we plea for the different causes that are happening in our life and different circumstances and difficulties and challenges, um, all those things that we are crying out to you, Lord, you hear them and you are coming closer so that you speak to us and you see us in our sorry state. I pray, Lord, that the folks here would receive you in faith. For those who do have a relationship with you, Lord, that it goes past just shallow thankfulness and gratitude, but it goes deeper to where they spiritually perceive your mercies, that they fall at your feet. Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray for their spiritual eyes to be open. I pray for their hearts and their minds to be softened to be able to receive you. I pray, God, that you would convict them of how far they are from you. Show them, Lord, how much they need you. And so, Lord, I intercede on behalf of their souls that, God, you would save them. In Jesus' name, amen.